You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy Saudors 98. Today we're going to talk about the difficult topic of animal poaching and uh, uh, animal trafficking. Uh, especially when it comes to high-value animals, high-value not only from the conservation standpoint, but uh, economically, like rhino, for example, where pound-for-pound rhino horn is more expensive than gold. So especially when it comes to those animals, problem is uh, severe. Um, we essentially dealing here with uh, militarized, highly trained uh, gangs and cartels um, of organized criminals who are... Um, conducting those actions, uh, conducting these 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 poaching acts, and uh, obviously it is incredibly uh, unfortunate and problematic not only for conservation efforts but also for local communities, for for people who live there and they're being uh, kind of caught in this uh, military-like conflict. Um, so uh, this is a difficult subject and we already talked about it on a few episodes, on a few previous episodes of the podcast. Um, but today we're going to focus on that as our guest is Nathan Edmondson, who is uh, president and co-founder of Eco Defense Group. Eco Defense Group is like special ops for uh, prevention of animal poaching. Um, uh, Eco Defense, they are... Uh, providing training and consultation for local rangers who are at the forefront of this uh, war. I'm, I'm not afraid to use that word. Um, and uh, they're trying to help them and assist them and um, help not only local communities, but also help um, protection and conservation of, of those species. Uh, interesting subject. I hope to uh, do more episodes in the future. Um, discussing various aspects of it. Uh, but for now, um, I am really pleased to be able to bring you that conversation. Please leave the comments uh, on your podcast or on the website, tomisoutdoors.com or um, on social media, anywhere, really engage. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, let me know what you think about this problem. And as always, if you like this episode, hit the like button, uh, rate it, five-star ratings are always appreciated. Leave the comment. And uh, most of all, if you want to help uh, what I do here, uh, share that episode. Share it with your friends or with anyone who you think might be interested in this subject. And uh, that's it for the introduction. Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, uh, Nathan Edmondson and Eco Defense Group. Nathan, welcome to the show. It feels like we have a pretty difficult and heavy subject on our hands today. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're you're very welcome. Uh, listen, just to set up the scene, can you can you hit us with a few numbers, few few stats? How the the poaching situation looks like uh, at the moment in terms of numbers, in terms of it, if it grows, and you know, to some extent, how bad is the situation? Well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I, I can give a few numbers. I'm not the best with, you know, as we're calling the statistics uh, accurately. So, you know, bear with me if, if I'm a little off, but I can certainly tell the narrative. Um, you know, there were a number of reports that came out last year uh, uh, from major news outlets about the decline in poaching in 2020, specifically rhino poaching. Um, I think most of us kind of knew that those were um, – those were false numbers, right? That, that, you know, when it's shut down and literally nobody can be on the road in some of these countries, poaching is just going to drop naturally. You don't have the trafficking pipelines open because commercial travel and some other things are um, restricted. So what we're seeing now is a surge, uh, definitely a surge in rhino poaching. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the parks, part of what you deal with, some of the parks, um, many of the parks don't disclose their poaching numbers and they don't disclose their population numbers. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, so sometimes getting accurate numbers and statistics can be, um, you know, can be, can be uh, uh, um, a little bit misleading. Um, in, in, I think in South Africa last year, uh, there were about 400 rhino poached, which is a significant decline. Um, But obviously that's based on, you know, like I just said, unique circumstances. Um, and I think this year we're on par to break that number uh, pretty quickly. Um, I'm not sure exactly where we are as of today, but I can tell you in one area where we were uh, about a month ago, there were 15 rhino poached uh, in just a couple of days. Um, and and th those trends have, have continued. Um, You know, there, there's been some estimation, too, that in areas where you're measuring some statistical decline, that it's because there are fewer rhinos to poach. And they're harder to find, harder to get. I mean, so you're still decimating the population, even if you don't see the numbers. And that, that's a really difficult and unfortunate thing to, um, you know, to uh, um, kind of accept and understand. Uh, you know, and, and you also have to talk different countries and, and also... Um, You know, if you think about uh, the, the rhino is the umbrella species. So there's certain areas. So obviously, the, the, you asked me a very simple question, but the answer isn't quite so simple. I think in, uh, let's see, um, last decade with 4,000 rhino lost. I'm looking at a couple things right now. Uh, 2019 um, to 2008 were 12,000 rhino in that's in South African national parks only. Um, so you're looking at 16,000 rhino decade before, I think when the rhino war started in 2000, about 2006, you saw something around, um, uh, in Kruger national park, you saw numbers that started, uh, you know, they went from about 50 to a hundred to 600, 700, 800. And then you saw some, uh, well, I hate to say the word stabilization, but you saw some then, As, as the war, you know, began to be, you know, as, as there was a defense to the rhino, you saw some stabilization of those numbers. But I think what we're seeing right now, uh, so far this year, the trend uh, is eclipsing last year. And I think it'll go on to radically 
and dramatically eclipse those numbers. Um, and the parks, many of the parks are facing as much as an 80% budget cut. So their ability to resist the, the surge, which is based on pent up demand, right? The demand is, is higher than it would have been um, should there not have been a pandemic, right? Uh, that that surge demand is met with much lower resources. So um, yeah, you're looking at, you know, last before the pandemic, you're looking at an average of three to four rhino poached a day. Um, I would wager that by the end of this year, we'd see that that's five to seven a day and that's South Africa only. Um, other places will see sort of varying degrees in those numbers. And of course, those are only the rhino numbers. Uh, we're seeing lion, uh, elephant, um, pangolin, you know, everything's targeted right now. There's demand for all of it. Yeah. So that was actually something that I think we, we I already mentioned. Uh, it, it was on the podcast that the, the COVID pandemic was, um, like, like you said, on one hand, artificially kind of seeing the decline in numbers of, of poached animals. Um, and there were some voices that, you know, we don't know whether there really is decline because they can still be poached and stashed. And the moment they uh, transfer routes, routes were open, then they, you know, the, the horns or, or whatever ivory will be shipped where it's supposed to be. But the other thing is, uh, like you said, decline in funding with with tourism being essentially dead uh no photo tourism no no hunters uh coming on the 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 the, the finance financial part of that uh suffered and this is what you're what you confirm right now um so this is not a new problem right the 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 poaching of of these animals is there Anything you see over time or right now that is changing in, in terms of, um, you know, how organized those poachers are? And because I'm, what I'm getting at is that the picture is quite complex because on the one hand, you might have local villagers who are, you know, basically suffering through the economic situation. On the other hand, you have, as far as I can tell, organized cartels which are, you know, essentially organized crime. How, yeah. how is it trending? Is it, is it changing right now? I, I don't know about changing. I mean, if, uh, you know, um, maybe we'll see later in the year. I mean, there may be the introduction of some new threats, uh, but I, I do think it's important to, you know, differentiate, you know, um, that there are different kinds of poaching. There is sort of the bushmeat, you know, well, let's say there, there's poaching based on need, right? Starvation, poverty, um, there's poaching based on opportunity. You know, it's not highly organized, it's not targeted, but based on proximity, you know, um, there there can be incursions and poaching or snares and traps and, and you know, different areas. Then you have um, sort of the, the locally recruited, syndicates will come in and recruit locally, um, uh, different, um, you know, groups or, or individuals to go in and, uh, and poach. And then you also, then you have, uh, like a professional mercenary type hunters like, or po poachers rather, uh, poachers who, um, have experience are, you know, are, are essentially mercenaries. Like you'd see in any other regard, freelancers. Um, you see some of that, uh, some of them may even have military experience or, you know, some other kind of advanced experience that, you know, that, that, becomes obvious as they um as they are able to 
evade uh, more advanced ranger tactics or, or tracking or things like that, that they have, you know, more than just bush tracking skills. Uh, and then, of course, in certain areas, um, South Sudan, you know, Congo, uh, you areas in Kenya, you have full on militias um, who, um, you know, who, who are organized, well armed, uh, extremely threatening and, and, you know, responsible for serious, um, serious uh, armed conflict. Uh, and, you know, we, we like historically and, and potentially currently there are other circumstances of terror groups um, profiting from, uh, um, you know, uh, wildlife trafficking, uh, trafficking of wildlife parts, uh, you know, um, Coney, obviously there's the famous tracking of the, the ivory to Coney's operations. And I think right now, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for it, but there's, I, I would say there's some rumors, some considerations of this new um, ISIS group uh, in northern Mozambique and the threat they could pose. And if you think about it, proximity to an area with, for example, Rhino, it's, uh, you know, it's like, it's like being near, you know, gold. It's an opportunity to fund your operations. So um, I think we have to be extremely wary of, um, of that dynamic, uh, you know, playing out as it has in the past, but it, it can some, can, the lines can sometimes be very blurry. I mean, the, the Southeast Asian syndicates, um, you know, they, they are clever in organizing uh, middlemen and recruiting people who are locals who are expendable, right. Uh, and, and to give them several layers of detachment from the actual crime. Um, so sometimes the organization, you know, there's stories where, you know, uh, Rangers will, or, or any poaching units will, um, advance a certain tactic or, or behavior in one area. And then you'll see across the country, an acclamation to that tactic. So there's clearly a, a, a widespread, um, coordination, sharing of information or, you know, uh, backing by, by the same sort of parent syndicate. Uh, and, and it can be very difficult to, um, yeah, to know where the lines are. And then, you know, real intelligence operations are, you know, always underway to try and, uh, to try and, uh, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service participates with uh, governments in Africa, for example, in trying to, um, you know, trying to penetrate the pipeline once the traffic parts have, have um, you know, left their points of origin. So, yeah. So again, it's, it is exactly what you said. It's very complicated. It's difficult to anticipate. You'll see certain behaviors in certain areas, you know, uh, in South Africa and neighboring countries, you do see kind of the, um, the um, dynamics of groups of often groups of three, uh, you know, one who shoots, one who cuts, one who carries, and they have kind of a, a well-organized um, and, and rehearsed, if you will. And sometimes, yeah, they, they have a lot of experience, a lot of time in the bush, uh, going after multiple animals. Um, sometimes over the course of years, sometimes they've been caught and, you know, are caught again. Uh, but you, you'll see kind of a, uh, rehearsed teamwork, um, for lack of a better word. And, you know, they're organized, they, they're efficient. And that can be very difficult, especially when you have a vast area to cover with very little resources. Um, so yeah. And, and to your point, by the way, about the, you know, the rhino numbers being difficult. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you like there, there are, um, there are, uh, practices right now where poachers will poison carcasses, um, and do other things specifically to kill vultures because vultures can, um, help 
you know, they'll, they'll help signal where the carcass is and rangers, air units can identify where it is based on seeing uh, uh, vultures. Obviously that's a reactive, um, but you know, most counter poaching is, is, or or a great deal of it is reactive, but uh, so the poachers will actively try to kill the vultures because the vultures were signal in their two day track, you know, that the rangers may be able to identify and get on it. Similarly, they have practices of using suppressors, uh, using tranquilizers. Now it's becoming, I think more common. I've heard gotten some messages about that. Um, that they'll, they'll use tranquilizers because the sound of a shot obviously um, can give away a, a, a um, give away the location of a poaching incident. And then you see um, use of like a panga, like a machete and uh, axes to sever the spine of a rhino. Uh, if it hasn't been killed to avoid firing a second shot or if they have the opportunity um, all of these are an attempt to disguise, you know, and, and conceal the act of the poaching. Uh, how many carcasses are undiscovered? I, I don't know. Um, but I also know that one of the things that can skew statistics is that um, calves will stay with the cow for three to four years. And if the cow is killed, there's um, a likelihood that that calf will escape temporarily uh you do have situations where they'll stay with the mother um until she's rotting out being eaten by hyena uh just because it still smells like mom and you know the the calf doesn't know better but uh the point is it's impossible to determine how many young calves uh have been lost when a cow is poached right so you know they they wander off in the bush get dragged away by lion or they shot later by poachers that carcass is a lot harder uh to find and, and can be you know decimated yeah. So the picture that you're painting here is is really not fun and it's really bad. So maybe now it's a good moment to introduce Eco Defense Group. So um can you tell us what you guys do and and how the group was founded? Like where like where the idea came from, like how it came to be? Right. Um, so I'll, I'll start with a bit of a disclaimer. You know, we said on our site that the nature of our group is that, you know, a lot of things we, we either can't describe, can't disclose, or we have to do so in, um, you know, fairly vague terms. So, if, you know, just be prepared for some of that. Um, I, I like to say uh, that we were founded out of need, not out of purpose. Uh, the difference is nobody involved, including myself, woke up kind of aware of the um, situation and, uh, you know, said, how do we go over and help? Um, I certainly did not anticipate, you know, that, that my life would be devoted to this cause. Um, we were founded because um, there was a unique brokering of U.S. special operations individuals to solve a need on the front lines of the Rhino War. Um, I heard about this and the level of capabilities that were being introduced was something completely unique. You know, I knew enough about um, the, the, the units, uh, the special missions units that, um, you know, that these guys had a background uh, that were these guys' backgrounds um, to know that this uh, level of capability had not been introduced to wildlife conservation for certain, certainly not in this way. So as we saw the efficacy of that, um, the efficacy of, of that, that consultation, problem solving, you know, going and delivering a new capability to a great need and, and seeing how that could offer an asymmetric capability to rangers, 
uh, we realized that we, you know, we had an opportunity to do this, um, you know, moving forward and, and by forming an organization around it. And so that's what we did. Uh, you know, we are in, in, on one hand, a consultancy. Uh, we don't have a one size fits all approach to anywhere that we go. Um, we go in, we uh, do an assessment to, to an area. Uh, we um, do, it's a very careful analysis, very thorough. And then we see, you know, in, in this analysis, what can we solve? You know, what is it that we can do to, um, you know, to, to improve the situation and the capabilities. And that may be, you know, maybe a very narrow lane for us, but, uh, you know, we're, we're very careful. We take on projects in three criteria. Um, the criteria one is, is, are we invited? Are we asked? You know, we're not, we're not a security contractor. We're not interested in going out and brokering, you know, um, brokering our, our talents and skills uh, where we're not needed. And, uh, um, you know, so, so where we're asked and where we're needed, uh, the, the criteria too is, um, is this something that we can do that no one else can do? They're excellent performers on the ground. Uh, you know, one I was speaking to this week, lead ranger up in Kenya, uh, actually the regional based in Kenya. They're an awesome group that has an awesome train the trainer program, which is something we're engaged in too. Uh, you know, uh, rangers have a lot of native capabilities, right. Um, that are part of their SOPs and, you know, part of part of their talents and, and their groups and teams. So we want to say, is this something that we have to offer really? And is it something that they, you know, they can't be gotten, frankly, cheaper, you know, uh, us activating our machine, going over and doing things is a serious commitment for us, for our donors. And we see a project all the way through. Um, and the third criteria is, does it fit within our, um, does it fit within our organization and our growth? Uh, you know, we, we aim to be very lean, uh, we take on projects that um, allow us to continue to be efficient and allow us to have a full execution to an end state of that program. So, you know, there's a danger sometimes with trying to wanting to do everything because everywhere you go, there's a need. Um, part of that uh, is in, in part of our nature is that we partnered with a group called the By Grace um, Foundation. Uh, and what they do is community development for women and girls, uh, employment uh, programs through textile centers, um, commercial opportunities. So we were engaged in some community projects and now we focus on what we do best and we invite them alongside us where there's an opportunity for them to benefit community. Cause we do believe that that's vital, uh, you know, to solving any problem. So, yeah, so we were formed out of, out of that need. Our, our goal is always uh, to achieve asymmetry and make a difference in surgical strategic fashion. Mm. So I I, pre, I presume that that you you have a military background yourself I, I would guess I do not no oh, you do I not? just uh, am in the business of hiring and managing oh, okay. uh, I have some okay. background that um, gave me uh, um, some knowledge uh, and access to the communities that we work with right right uh, so so cu- a couple of things like first you you said that you're not actively you know, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's exactly word that you use. Not advertise yourself. Uh, you're waiting to be asked to be engaged in a, in a certain projects. But how, like, who need, who is asking you? Is it is it governments? Are these uh, like a uh, ranger groups who are managing wildlife parks? And and then they have to hear about you somehow as well. So there has to be some level of you know kind of showing the flag going on saying hey we're here and in case you you need us you can reach out right yeah i mean i, I our, our attitude i mean one i i like to say a lot of what i do is 
you know, development for future programs. I go over and find, you know, build relationships, find needs. I like to say we do campfire development. Um, there's a lot of things you only hear about when you've developed a relationship and, you know, sit, eventually sit around a bry fire with somebody and, and fully understand the need, right? Um, and there's also the level of access we have in some of the places, the, the um, intimate relationships we have mean that we get to hear and understand needs that aren't otherwise advertised. Um, so I'm, I, our goal, though, is to um, perform our programs with quality and let word of mouth invite us to other places. Um, we, uh, you know, we have a social media and a website presence. We have great photography, great photographers we work with. Uh, but I, like I said, we have to be less than descriptive, less than descriptive about where we are um, and, and what capabilities we're introducing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, word of mouth is, is the primary driver of our exposure to new project areas. I mean, look, we're in our infancy, uh, hopefully in our infancy. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we're, we're still seeing growth, but we have found ourselves in some pretty unique positions. Uh, one of those is um, we were one of the first ever groups, certainly in our space, uh, uh, first certainly nonprofit to be asked to do implementing work um, through the U.S. Uh, Consulate General in the embassy there. Um, specifically, there was a need that um, hadn't been delivered on for five years uh, with a national park in South Africa, uh, Table Mountain. And we were able to implement uh, fast rope training from helicopters uh, for firefighters to protect that park. Um, in that case, like we, we have developed a really good reputation relationship with um, uh, the, the, the U.S. officials who are working over there out of various embassies, fish and wildlife. And we, they have really, you know, they have real interest in, in you know, helping out where they can uh, and, you know, for us to collaborate and be a group that can implement to them. And it's also important for us because um, we want to maintain a very good relationship with all entities because we are an outside group. Um, you know, historically, there are other groups who have behaved badly or, or made mistakes that have gotten them um, uh, uh, um, uh, sort of um, outside the good graces of their hosts. And, you know, to us, we have to do what we do both as a collaboration, respecting always that we're a guest wherever we go, but also, you know, understanding that we are a U.S., primarily U.S. presence uh, that we do employ and work with um, Africans, but primarily our contractors or our, our uh, security um, capable contractors are coming from the U.S. So, uh, you know, having the level of credibility that I, I that we have and enjoy right now is very important to us to maintain that and always respect the goals uh, and uh, if any restrictions um, of you know official U.S. presence, but certainly of the host countries, the national park systems. So. Uh, the bottom line is quality, uh, quality of program, maturity, uh, discretion, and um, honestly, humility, not thinking we're over there for ourselves and understanding we are a guest. And ultimately, honestly, ultimately, we're not the ones risking our lives. And I think if you understand that position um, and understand that we're in support of the Rangers, that it helps you get in a place that allows you to grow new relationships and find new places to be of service. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so you're you're said, and like you know, like uh, uh, I'm aware that you might not be able to answer all the questions. Uh, that's okay. Um, but what I'm taking from from you is like you. So you're actually not. Like say you're, we're not risking your life. So you're actually not kind of uh, 
military orga organization, like a private military organization that goes out and, and supplies su su you know, soldiers or boots on the ground. You're working mainly with rangers who are actually already in that conflict, right? You, you use the term war or rhino wars, which is essentially what it is, because that's a, that's a picture I have in my head that this is like a essentially full-blown armed conflict what's going on yeah i mean um yeah uh, it's important to understand that we do not engage none of our guys are there to um engage in any kind of uh, law enforcement uh, security activity that is not our role it's not our interest and um, we are there to support train equip and enable right we find the rangers who have a need that we can deliver on and our goal is to to improve ensure their you know to the degree that we are able ensure uh, their protection, their safety, and then their ability to do their job um, at an asymmetric level uh, opposed what to the What does it mean? You, 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 you mentioned like a third time asymmetric level. I, I'm not, can you explain like what, what you mean by that? Yeah, so our, our goal in a program is when I say asymmetry, what I mean is that they have a greater capability than the, the threat that they face, than oh, you know, okay. the poaching group or whatever. Uh, whatever the nature of the poaching group they take on. So, and that's important because like I said, we're not a one size fits all approach. So, you know, in one area, they may face a certain level of threat. In another area, they may face a different level of threat. Our goal is not to get everybody to this level, but rather to get everybody just to an advantaged level over the threat that they face um, based on the resources available to both of us um, and, and our assessment of those needs. Um, our, Say, rangers say, and we also, you know, if we're doing, if our collaboration with rangers is, um, and, and our training is effective, then there will be less conflict because ultimately the goal should be getting what we say, ride a boom, deterrent, to level deterrence. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that certainly is our, our mutual goal. Uh, we don't want anybody to be shot. We don't want anybody to get in a fight. If we can stop the fight before it's over, if we can allow the rangers to dominate in such a way that no shot is fired, either at a ranger or an animal, that's the ultimate goal. It's very difficult to get there in some cases. Now, we are working in two locations right now um, where, interestingly, people learned from uh, how unaware um, or, or, or unprepared groups were for the, the um, surge of the rhino war in the last decade. And we're introducing capabilities that aren't even necessary, necessarily needed yet, but we anticipate that because of either the introduction of Rhino to this area or growing trends that they're going to face that. But that, you know, hopefully, ideally puts them in a position to be proactive, not reactive, to be deterrent. Uh, and and um, it's very difficult once, you know, it's kind of, there's a viral nature from my perspective. Um, it, once poachers kind of get into an area or a syndicate gets in, it's very difficult to get them out because they, they're organic, they evolve, they learn, you know, when they're on the inside um, or they've corrupted, you know, uh, people or, or, you know, um, engaged in some intelligence and fact finding. And once they're inside, it can become very difficult. You remain in a reactive place potentially for a very long time. So if we can work with groups and there are those who really have the foresight and the, um, uh, the, uh, um, uh, advanced um, uh, sort of progressive thinking to, to um, you know, anticipate those threats and be prepared for them. That's fantastic. And we really want to be, you know, supportive of that. So, um, yeah, so asymmetric is just, you know, making the best better, as we say.
Gotcha. 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 Listen, and you're, this is uh, quite interesting. You mentioned uh, working with local communities and, and you also so mentioned um, how syndicates or poachers are either through, uh, you know, basic coercion or, or uh, economic exploiting essentially uh, poor economic situation of, of, of local people um, getting their foothold in a, in their, into certain areas. How uh, I, I was just wondering whether whether better question would be did, did you did you, have you been confronted with such a situations or or you know what is the game plan in in, in that because then essentially uh, well, from my naive arguably perspective it's hard to find. Um, you know, how to work with local community when the local community is, you know, so to say, owned by the cartel. And what is going in, on in, in situations like that? Have, have, have you ever have to deal with this? Um, I, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I understand what you're asking. You mean, have, have we seen attempted corruption and recruitment or, or? Yeah, no, no. I'm asking like, you know, where, where you have a basically a poor village for, for argument's sake, right? And then the, those cartels move in and they essentially recruiting or forcing those people to work for them, right? Either through threatening them or through paying the money. Uh, it seems like then it's a quite difficult situation. It's, it's impossible almost from my, like I say, a naive perspective for you to come in and convince them like, no, no, now you work with us, right? What's going on in those situations? Yeah, well, I, I mean, no, okay. So yeah, you're right. I mean, um, look, rhino horn is the most valuable material on the planet when it hits the black market right now, right? And when that is literally on the other side of the fence from an, an impoverished community um, or, or community facing, you know, um, few economic opportunities, the recipe is, is very, very difficult to, um, you know, very difficult to, to confront, uh, and, and resist. So, yeah, I mean, recruitment, um, I, I think I, I've heard fewer, I mean, there, there's intimidation to get involved in militias and terror groups, right. Uh, on the more sort of syndicate to kind of local community, um, uh, scenarios. I don't, I'm not aware of, um, as many overt, uh, um, overt attempts to intimidate people into poaching. It's more, you know, financial recruitment. Um, you know, I, and, and you're right at the end of the day, economics drive everything. Right. And that, that, that's, it's, yeah. I mean, there's very few, um, I mean, Elon Musk can move in and build 10 factories and employ, you know, 500,000 people, right. In various places, like there, there are, which China is actively doing, <laughs> except they're not, employing a lot of locals. Um, so, you know, e economic opportunity and growth uh, is probably one of the key things globally, but, uh, you know, that, that's a nearly impossible thing in certain areas. So I, I think there are a few ways in which we have seen, you know, um, positive movement. There's a group called Save the Waterberg Rhino, actually, uh, in South Africa that does some fantastic community outreach. And I know one of the things they do is they try to connect to communities the um, reality that the same pipeline and syndicates that move the trafficked parts that you know their son or 
brother or nephew, you know, maybe engaged in poaching, um, those same pipelines traffic their daughters, bring drugs into their communities, weapons and other things. And so you get this, you know, they hear them tell it. Uh, I don't have a lot of direct experience of this, but the um, uh, the women in those communities, if you get their buy in understanding, you know, uh, that it's not simple economics, that, you know, there, there's an overall threat to the community, that they have a great deal of influence. Um, you, you know, our, one of our, our board of advisory members, um, Dr. Okori, he had, uh, uh, it's a great success story uh, in Malawi. He had a, um, there was a village where with the new, um, the new um, border definition of a, uh, a park there cut off some of their historic, um, again, inadvertently historic access to uh, uh, like a water supply where they, there was fishing and other things. So um, you were seeing a lot of incursions and a lot of poaching. It was mainly based on opportunity and food, but, you know, that started to progress into you know, greater opportunity, bigger animals. So they came up with a program. It was a multi-year program where they uh, put in uh, fisheries, hatcheries. Uh, they put in um, uh, beehives uh, for honey. They built gardens. They just helped the community become self-sufficient. Um, and, and I mean, they did extraordinary things like uh, they brought in chickens. So they found that there are these chickens in Australia, or at least an Australian bread line um, that produced, I think, three times as many eggs as local chickens. Problem is they didn't sit on their eggs. They're like a high producer, but, you know, low, <laughs> like low incubation interest. But they found that if they got the guinea fowl that were local and they put wax in their ears where they couldn't be called to their flock, they would sit on the egg. So they upped this, they had like a great egg production through this, like uh, really, uh, you know, create. So they did, they did a lot of things like that. And ultimately they really stopped the, um, the incursions into the park and the attempts to, you know, fish and, and hunt illegally. Um, you know, that, that's a great model and great success story to look at, to say, you know, this is a way in which helping the community had a very positive impact. Um, the more militant, uh, you know, syndicates, I mean, it's like a gang in any, you know, really vicious gang in any big city or certainly drug cartels, right? It's very hard to resist the attraction um, of, and, and there, I, I would venture to say that there is certainly a um, peer pressure element, maybe that borders on intimidation that, that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know, and a thing to understand too, I mean, you know, we get messages all the time on Instagram, like kill the poachers, can't wait to kill the poachers, you know, poach the poachers, all this. I mean, we have instances where a ranger, uh, you know, who, who's, you know, somebody very noble and um, focused, uh, you know, may have another family member who's poaching, you know, and, and the reality is that poacher is bringing in, they're the person engaged in poaching is bringing in more money to his family than the ranger is. Right. And so if you're talking about feeding the kids, the grandkids, I mean, from the family's perspective, one guy's doing it better. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody, including myself, anybody is beyond being corrupted uh, when you're in a position where, um, you know, where, where, where it makes a difference in, in your life that, that uh, you know, when you have great need. Um, I think one of the things we've seen too um, is that we take it for granted. And this is actually where, where you can kind of have a really awesome overlap of the conversation with the hunting community, because we take it for granted that wildlife has value, right? The rhino has more value alive than dead. And that's not a sinister thought. It's just a reality, right? 
to most people who live in areas where there are rhino, if they've ever even seen one, which we have seen people who live five miles from parks with rhino and have been there 20 years and never seen one, right? Whereas we see it two hours or two days after we land, you know? Um, so this idea that this, you know, the, the, these animals are wonderful, and must be protected, that, that either that education or that awareness or just that respect, that value isn't there for a lot of the local communities. I mean, there are things that give wildlife value, tourism, hunting, um, you know, uh, 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 farming, um, you know, research grants, NGOs, all of these things give wildlife value and they have to work together uh, because at the end of the day, if you can't give wildlife value, um, whether perceived or actual, but more actual than perceived at the end of the day is what you need, then, um, you know, you, uh, um, yeah, you're, you're always going to be playing catch up and, 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 and losing. And, um, you know, like right now it costs more to buy a buffalo than an elephant, you know, on the continent, right? Elephants are free. You know, people are giving them away. There's nowhere to keep them. It's, you know, somebody reached out to me the other day. There were, there were oh, what was it, 47 elephants or something that were going to be cold. And they were, oh, this is horrible. How horrible is it? And I did some quick math, which I'm not doing now. I'm just referencing from memory. But I think, you know, I thought to keep these elephants for 10 years, uh, it was about 35 million US. You know, you got to buy them. You got to feed them. You got to have land big enough for that many elephants. And that's a lot of land. Uh, you got to have um, security, protection. You know, you got to employ people. Like, you got to manage the land. You got to manage the fences. Like, it, it's a wonderful idea, but who who's going to take them right i mean that's that's where big game hunting and other things come in is because you know from their perspective well we got to kill 47 elephants because they're destroying the land that we have for the other animals and the other elephants so wouldn't it be better to fund our operations if a you know wealthy person from the west comes and shoots one it's hard to argue with those economics you know whether you are in favor of big game hunting or not and then of course the non-big game hunting the, the herd animal hunting or you know, uh, uh, other areas, I mean, the same metrics apply, right? That, that value of that engagement goes to protect that land and, and give value. Now, we can talk in a second about it. There's, there's some complications to that, especially right now, um, you know, that, that economic formula. But um, yeah, look, this is a long digression from your simple question yet again. Uh, but um, yeah, the reality is economics are important. I think education from kid to kids, especially that these animals are something special. Uh, we, we, when we were doing more community work before by grace, we did um, art and photography programs. We'd bring famous photographers, excellent photographers and artists and teach kids to paint and take pictures. They just look at animals differently, right? Will that deter them from being recruited to be engaged in wildlife trafficking? You know, hopefully, but at the end of the day, economics is economics, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think we have to be realistic about that. One thing I will say, and I don't want to give us too much credit here. So, you know, I want to be careful how boldly I state this, but I will say that some of the rangers we work with, um, we have built really good relationships. They were WhatsApping constantly. We're, you know, we see them on the ground we brought some to the U S. Um, I would like to say that, you know, when they have needs, they ask, even if it's something simple, could you bring me this for my kid? Could you do this? Like we, we, we have small programs and strong relationships and we do everything we can in those regards. Right. Um, I would like to say that because of our relationships, there um, is less of a likelihood that those people would become discontented and, you know, corrupted. And I don't say that because I think they're specifically more corruptible than anyone else, including myself. Right. 
But I do know that especially now being a ranger, one, these guys, if you imagine like a park ranger in Yellowstone signing up, they're not signing up to put on a plate carrier and shoot anyone and get shot at by AK-47s. So thing one is that they're just facing a reality that I don't think, you know, maybe now people head into that, but it's certainly not worth the risking of their life is not worth what they're paid. You know, I see, I see, um, I see the, the numbers, like how many uh, rangers were killed or shot. It's, it's like, like you said, they're, they're probably never thought they're going to sign, be signing up to this sort yeah. of. And I mean, and, and at some point they got to say, I got kids at home. Is it worth dying for an animal? You know, uh, I, 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 that's a, that's a, I don't, I've never had to answer that. I don't risk my life. Right. I mean, some of the stuff we do is can be dangerous, but I'm not like them. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, you're also seeing like during COVID, we, we traveled during COVID, we were allowed to travel because we have diplomatic note for that. And it's awful. I mean, these, these guys are isolated. They have no means. There's no $1,400 check coming from the government for them. There's no, you know, maybe no access to binge things on Netflix. Like the isolation was real. The loss of income, you can't, they're not issued gas money. They can't get new boots. I mean, you're talking about what was already a difficult situation is now it's, they are disheartened. They are lonely. They are tired. They, they don't have any days off these guys. And, and, uh, you know, it, I, yeah. So, I mean, anything we can do to just make them feel like they're not alone. Um, I think that's, that's really important. I think we see it now in a way we didn't see it before. Yeah. That's, that's, it's well put. Listen, I, I, I'm curious about your, your comments, or maybe you can expand a little bit on it because you mentioned something that I was going to ask you about that, um, you know, there people sending you these, oh, kill the poachers. And, you know, we, we, we seen that, uh, that somewhere was messaged out. A poacher were killed or eat by a lion and people cheering. And then usually people who know what's up, who been on the ground saying like, well, there's nothing to cheer for because these people are, they sometimes have no choice. They're, they're sometimes, it, it's not that clear cut. And then there is this discussion that um, often so-called militarization of conservation might result with this attitude, especially in the, in the West, like, oh, it is okay to kill a poacher, right? There's a black and white, there's a poacher, it's okay to kill a poacher. And then this is, you know, this is really, I'm not, I'm not going to say this label, but it is really kind of like a colonialist almost approach, right? They're like, oh, it's them, they're poachers, so go ahead and kill them. But then uh, you, you mentioned like there's sometimes one family and within that family, there is a poacher and there is a, a ranger. And also sometimes the poachers are turned rangers because they have this knowledge, right? About animals, about tracking, about techniques used by poachers. So then they're excellent as, at being rangers to be able to, uh, you know, neutralize the techniques on, on poaching. So I'm curious yeah. your, your comments on that. Well, uh, look, first thing is this, life is life, right? We, we can't champion the life of wildlife, not champion the life of people, you know, um, whether poachers or anybody. So I, I don't like the attitude that celebrates the death of poachers because again, life is life. That, that's the business that we're in. Um, look, there, there can be, and, and obviously, you know, if you're dealing with militias that are organized and, and you know, it can be 
have a very different feeling than if you're dealing with people who are identifiably from a local community. Um, also, when your life is threatened, uh, it's hard, like to, it's hard to sort of see the humanity and, and think in those terms, right? That's a luxury. Um, and sometimes there's a brutality to the poaching uh, or an indiscriminate nature to the poaching that just is hard. It's hard to give kind of, you know, the benefit of humanity to some of these people. Like I get it. It, 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 it's very difficult, right. To see some of these things, but I think you, you can't forget that you're facing fellow humans, right. Like in any conflict, I mean, these are people like life is life. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are countries that have a, you know, law enforcement approach and arrest approach. Um, there are countries, other countries that have, um, you know, a, a shoot on site approach. Um, there is a strong argument to be made that that one ultimately ends with, you know, more deterrence that, that, you know, a more severe approach just means less conflict because there's a greater consequence. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to necessarily weigh in and say that I think one is better, but I do think we have to understand that, you know, uh, strong lethal measures can act as a deterrent that, you know, uh, an approach of law enforcement doesn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's an ongoing conversation that you see and, uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, um, we are certainly not in the business of celebrating uh, any level of conflict, any loss of life. Um, you know, we want we want these rangers bored, fat, happy. You know, like we just, and then we would love the local communities to be the same. Like uh, we wish that they could appreciate wildlife on safari. You know, it's not reasonable to anticipate that the conflict will stop anytime soon. Of course, but you know, our our when you say the militarization, we don't prefer it. I mean, our contractors, like the guys who work with Edge, the guys we've brought over there, they have seen a lot of conflict, a lot of shooting, a lot of killing. None of them want more of that, right? They've seen the value of them. They've seen what worked and they saw what didn't work. They have worked in different environments facing similar problems and threats, you know, and I guarantee you not a single person we work with would get excited or uh, at all um, warm to the idea of, you know, themselves or anybody else engaging in any kind of um, combat and combat conflict or anything else. It's, it's just not what we, it's not what we like, but when it happens, we want the Rangers we work with to be safe. Right. Right. And this is true, providing them training and, and potentially equipment and tactics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Listen, Nathan, um, when, when, you know, we're going to be wrapping that up slowly, but uh, I have another question for you with relation, like, can you give us a view on the political context of, of that conservation, especially in the, like, we, you, you mentioned China, and, uh, and obviously uh, China is moving into Africa, right? I, I even heard it's of they buying out the Af Africa um, yeah. so how, how does, you know, is, do you see that as an obstacle that you're, because without a doubt you're being perceived you know, and all oh, these are the Americans coming in here and there is a, like a tension, I'm guessing there's a tension, like how you're, how are you mitigating that? How you, or, or is it significant problem for, for you? Like if given the, because on the other hand, the governments of those countries, they, you know, like, it seems like this is something that the governments also should take a note and make some decisions, whether with relation to, you know, laws or uh, anything else, or even allocation of 
military resources if it comes to that, right? So this is very complex situation, I think, not only from a perspective, operational on the ground perspective, like, oh, you're dealing with a cartel and you need to know, but there's also like a bigger forces at play, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to wade too deeply into, you know, talking geopolitics. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly don't consider myself qualified to speak with any authority on it. I will say, you know, when it comes to China and countries in Asia who engage in, you know, are the main um, destination for trafficked wildlife parts, you're dealing with deeply, deeply rooted traditions of these medicinal cures or, um, uh, you know, folkloric uh, remedial use of, of wildlife parts. Uh, you're also dealing with some serious economics. Um, you know, uh, whether what level of corruption may exist in a place that, you know, um, that, that makes for resistance of, um, makes for resistance to, to, uh, resistance to resisting, you know, the, the trafficking of wildlife parts. Um, you know, I, I can't say, I mean, it's undoubtedly there. I think there's, um, you know, there's other considerations like, um, you know, I mean, well, I, look, China, China, even last year, the year before, uh, you know, announced that they were going to legalize the import uh, of, of elephant, you know, rhino, uh, rhino horn, elephant ivory and some other. Some, things. some would you know, argue they, that some would argue that this might be a good move because then you will be able to put more control over it versus black market. Right. You, you surely heard those those points of view. Yeah, I. I Look, personally, I don't give a lot of credence that that's going to be well exercised, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's like I said, I, I don't have expertise in this matter. Um, you know, a lot of what I hear is just sort of down, you know, down, downhill. Um, as far as what we face, I mean, certainly there are local attitudes in places who um, not necessarily wrongly or not necessarily with the wrong instincts say, we don't need your help. You're an outside group. Some of that is because other groups have behaved badly and not been respectful. Some of that is because, um, you know, these guys are entrenched and they say, this is our fight. We got it, you know, like, and I think, you know, if I'm in a position to make the case to anybody, one, we want to be humble and respectful. And like I said, if, if we're not welcome, if we, if, if we don't feel like this is a place where we can be additive and have a good relationship, then we're not going to try to elbow our way in. <laughs> but my perspective is, you know, this may be their fight, but if the rhino is lost, it's not lost to them. It's lost to all of us. Right. I mean, that that's so, it, you know, I do have um, an obligation to, if I'm in a position to do something about this cause, I have an obligation to do something because um, one, the rhino has a right to life. Um, and two, because, you know, it's a global loss and, and it's not just a global loss. It's a future loss. It's a loss for my kids and their kids. I mean, the greatest days of my life in, in some respects have been spent or, or the greatest adventures of my life have been spent um, in Africa because of these animals. And I would absolutely love to preserve that in any small, um, hopefully very effective, hopefully meaningful way that I can personally, that we as an organization can. So that's my instinct. Um, I can tell you the other people involved in Eco Defense Group you know, they share that attitude. I mean, our contractors, once they get over, they understand, they build a relationship. They, they just want to make a difference. And I think it's important to know the difference between whether you're there to make a difference or whether you're there because you want to be there, right? Um, again, it goes to the point of 
are we doing something no one else can do? Are we invited? You know, uh, and I'll say that the day we're not needed or, or we don't find a need for, um, you know, what, what we can offer is the day I go back on safari. You know, I get to do very little of that there, but I do absolutely love the places we are. Um, so yeah, fortunately I would say that while all, sometimes there's bureaucracy resistance, uh, you know, political attitudes, um, for the most part, we enjoy awesome relationships, friendships, um, and, you know, really have a community in the places where we work. So I think that we feel very welcome and we would really, and we do, we would do anything for the people that, you know, we're with because I'm here talking to you. I'm waking up this morning, making my coffee. Uh, you know, I'm hoping I don't get a WhatsApp that, you know, something has happened to a guy we work with. Right. I mean, it, it's every day there's a threat to their life. So if I can wake up at 4 a.m. today, focus on fundraising, do what I can to support our programs, get over there and give them a better year. Um, give them a new capability, then, you know, that's my drive. Um, and I think that the people who want to have that collaboration, we're there to have a collaboration with. So, um, yeah, so all that might be a little, uh, <laughs> a little bit histrionic, but, you know, we get passionate. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can use that passion as the rear wheel of the bicycle to drive you focused forward, then all the better. Yeah. Yeah, I I heard this uh, on a, on, a, on a quite a few occasions, especially you know recently, uh, a lot of discussion about trophy hunting and and the bans of, of trophy import on on various uh, in various uh, jurisdictions. You, you know, I know that California is one, um, UK is considering that as well, and quite often the view is like you know, back off, let the locals, like the local communities manage their resources. They, they're being the guardians of their resources for ages. And, and this is, you know, let them do what they, what they think is best for, uh, you being very close to that. Is that the majority of what you would observe that those local communities are, you know, doing good job at managing their resources if they only, you know, allowed to, Or do you think that on some occasions they might need, you know, let's say guidance or, uh, you know, like where you sit at the, at the idea, like just back off, let them do what they, what they should do. It's their rhino, their, their stuff and, and so on. I, I think it's important, vital to have an attitude of respect and, you know, an understanding that you're a guest, Right. Uh, that is from the perspective of people coming from the West or coming from outside of what area we're working in. Um, I think there's a difference between saying, you know, could they do it if left to their own devices? We're meddling. I, I, I think there's a difference between saying, between being under-resourced and under-prepared and being dedicated. There's a lot of people who are incredibly dedicated, but there's only so much you can do when, again, the, the, the people, the, the amount of money that comes in from, rhino horn for example i mean it's it's like it, it's hard for any budget to accommodate that right um it, and again it's like nobody could have looked down the line a few decades ago and anticipated you know the the level of conflict that uh would surround um you know surround wildlife i think so yeah i mean so i i i don't think the line of thinking of you know they just need to be left to their own devices we shouldn't meddle um is is uh you know, I, I think it is, is applicable. I think it's under-resourced and can we support their best efforts? That's why we like to say we, we make the best better, 
We're not trying to say we create the best or we come in and we, you know, are the best or something. We just want to make them better. We want to do what we can to support. Um, you know, you can now, you can certainly get into the conversation. Um, and uh, this will allow me to foray into giving a shout out to one of our favorite people. Uh, but you can certainly um, recognize that in places, uh, outside influence that has, for example, uh, pressured governments or parks to ban hunting or to ban certain other practices um, have had, in some cases, detrimental effects, right? Um, and, and there are circumstances where countries will, you know, be persuaded to um, enact bans or do something like that uh, because they don't want to turn away money or they don't want to turn away outside people showing up to help who have, you know, great clout and resources. Um, you know, you don't want to say, no, sorry, I can't, you know, but they, but there are, there are instances where outside groups come in and try to um, impose their principles, views, and, and their sensibilities. You do hear about that a great deal. There are examples. Um, I'll be careful not to get too detailed into some of those uh, because you do start to wade into real politics, but I, you do see that, right? And you see that, like, we don't, we don't have, we're not big enough to, you know, to have that kind of influence if, if we wanted to. So I don't think we're, there's a danger of us kind of influencing policy in that way uh, or, or, you know, standard practices or, or anything. But um, there are groups and there are governments that, you know, if you, for example, put a ban on the export of certain hunting trophies, that's going to have an economic effect to areas engaged in wildlife conservation. Right. Um, so whether it's, it's, you know, well-meaning or whether you agree with, you know, the institution of restrictions like that or, or um, you know, regulations, you have to recognize the economic impact it's going to have. Um, and I think the um, hunting is where you see that most obvious, you know, the most obvious introduction, at least to me, introduction of regulations that hinder or hurt um, revenue that goes to conservation. Now, part of the reason we're talking today, and this is something I wanted to bring up. Well, the main reason we're talking is because the wonderful Rachel Carey, uh, who has been uh, just a great supporter coming to the mix recently. And we love a great deal. Um, you know, she, she was previously a guest on your show and she, um, you know, recommended we speak, but the conversation with her has been really informative and, and healthy. I think she recognizes, and this is the pitch I've, I've been making um, to some uh, Safari Club International, other groups I've had the opportunity to speak to, which is, you're going to see that there's going to be less direct money from hunting in Africa going to conservation because they've been hurt by the shutdown uh, badly as well, right? You know, revenue has just stopped all over. You're seeing culls of animals that would have been hunted last year. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's tragic. They're still hunting groups who want to go over, but, you know, uh, find flights too restrictive or the COVID testing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nightmare to travel, right? Not from the perspective of the empty seats on a plane, but I mean, you know, getting a COVID test that you have to have 72 hours before you land and you've got three layovers, you know, it, it, these things make a lot of people, plus the situation on the ground, you know, rising crime in certain areas, you know, have, have had an impact on, on, you know, commercial hunting and other things. So part of the case I, I'd like to make uh, privately and to a degree publicly, I don't do, I don't put my face out there very much. Uh, so, you know, uh, is, is, that I think we would like to see based on the intelligence and the experience we're having 
um, a really good conversation going on with the hunting community um, and with other interested conservation parties about becoming more invested and more invested intellectually, like learning more, finding more direct ways to contribute. If you're going over to, to have a safari, to have a hunting safari, whatever it is, we invite you to, whether with us or someone else, just take some time to really gain more insight into the situation. Because we're at a point where we, the, the, the COVID, the effects of COVID and, and the COVID shutdown um, are just having such a detrimental impact that we've got to encourage more involvement. And Rachel has the exactly those instincts, right? That's why she reached out to us. She said, look, I want to be proactive. I don't want to be talk about this. I want to reach out. I want to learn more. Uh, she, she just wanted, at first, she just wanted to learn everything, soak it up. She wants to, we've invited her. We hope she travels with us um, so that she can be proactive and the resources connections that she has. And I hope she doesn't mind me speaking for her here, but I think, you know, she should be, her instincts here are just really laudable. And I think a good, something we'd like to see, you know, a whole lot more of the opportunity to have a conversation, learn more on the ground and just find ways to connect. It uh, doesn't mean you have to become a significant donor to us or someone else. We would love it. You know, we, we rely on private relationships and donations to do what we do. Um, and we would love to bring people like her, other interested people into the mix. But just to say, this is something I care about. I'm interested in whether it's Africa or here, um, but certainly they face a very dire threat and real need. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm going to take time to learn, understand more and understand that I might be in a position to bring a solution to a problem that they have or bring some support that otherwise I, I didn't realize. So, um, yeah, we, we just, you know, there's nothing negative to say about any of the support that any of these communities are giving right now, but I would just like to encourage, you know, the growth of the conversation, a little more intimacy. Uh, and if we can aid in that, whether for our benefit or, you know, directly or just directly the benefit of people we work with, you know, that's why I'm talking to you today. I'd like to find ways to reach out to people because we see it and it's not the time to sort of just hope we got to be active. It's pretty dire. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great message. Nathan. And so maybe now it's a great time to, to tell us or anybody who listens or watching this, like how, how to support you, how to support your group. What's the best way? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's really two primary three ways. Um, and I'll say this with, here's the really unfortunate news. Um, And, and this is, I brought a donor over a uh, uh, really interested party in February. You spent some time with us. And, you know, one of the things that's being said privately in places is that the wild rhino has eight years left. Uh, it's not being said publicly. Now, engaging in that kind of talk is really tricky because you hear it, you know, the planet has 12 years left, eight years left. You know, we're all going to be underwater by July 2019. Or, you know, it's like groups throw out hyperbole so much that when you hear a statistic like that, it almost plants off of you. Well, we saw it. We saw 15 rhino killed in a week when we were there in one place. I mean, it's just unreal. Um, so that, that metric of eight years left, it, it could be very real. Um, and, you know, she came away and I, I wrote a piece where I kind of said some of this and field ethos who, who have been awesome supporters to us and reached out and asked me to pin a piece for them stating this, you know, she said, look, it just feels hopeless. Right. It just feels hopeless. I mean, that was her takeaway after spending a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, she, had, she and her husband had an awesome time. I mean, we, they saw incredible things because I was next to them. I saw incredible things. Uh, but she said it just feels hopeless. And that the next day we had the opportunity to stand in front of 12, I think, rangers who are in a special ops team that we've trained and work with uh, intimately. And I said, you know what? Like, 
like I, it felt hopeless to Sparta, right? Uh, there are people who are literally willing to go without sleep and put their lives on the line for this. So the hope that I see is the ability to give them the best capabilities we can, right? What does that look like in eight years? Like, I don't think we can plot a course to saving the rhino, like really, really clearly. But I do think that it's, it's not hopeless so long as there are people willing to give everything, right? I'm giving everything I can, time, uh, every effort, you know, uh, uh, burning through my, my phone battery every day, you know, whatever, whatever it takes for me to make a, to give a contribution. If I can inspire someone else, if Rachel comes to the table, someone else, I mean, we are going to see a difference. We are introducing capabilities. This is the case I make for us that have never been introduced before, you know? So let's, let's, let's have hope in that. Let's have hope that the best we're making better, you know, can make a difference, can turn a tide, you know, can stop an army coming through the gates, right? It's not quite that obvious and simple, but I do think there, there is cause for hope based on the people who are willing uh, to do what the guys we work with do. So if you want to get behind that, which uh, I really hope that, that you know, people do come into the mix, um, understand one, we rely as a group, we're very small, uh, we're very strategic, and we can't do really wide appeals easily because if we say we've trained guys in night vision in this place, well, now the poachers and everybody else knows those capabilities are there. We have to be discreet and that makes fundraising difficult for us. So we will expose a lot of what we do privately. We rely on those relationships, people to come into the mix and, and kind of join, join our family in that way. So, you know, you can go to our website, you can, you can learn more, you can reach out to us and start a dialogue in the way that you have. We encourage all of that. I'll, I'll always take any call, any email, anytime I can. Um, and, uh, you know, on our site, you, just, you can make a donation. We can send you decks that show you, here's what you're investing in. We treat our donors as investors. You're investing in us and the work we're going to do. Uh, we will work hard for every dollar given to us, um, uh, every dollar, every pound given to us. Uh, you're also investing in the future of wildlife. We believe that, right? Um, and and that, that is a true investment, right? It, it makes a difference in, in the global economy, makes a difference in the world. Um, so we treat our donors as investors. Um, you can go on our website, you can look, you can reach out, you can donate, you can you know, make a, a, a monthly donation. You can buy some of our awesome shirts in our shop. Thanks to Cry Precision and Multicam, we have some sweet shirts. Um, you, can, you can spread our word on social media, you can push us, and uh, you, you can think about relationships you might have and make introductions. We rely on that. We absolutely rely on that. So yeah, if somebody's in a position to do any of that, uh, you know, it could be that one listener to your show could uh, uh, either directly or indirectly, um, solve our entire year. You know, th those relationships and those interests are out there. And to that person, we'd say, get on a plane with us, throw some night vision on, get in the helicopter, like come, come experience on the front line, something that, you know, no tourist could buy. Uh, we'd love to show you what we do. Right. Right. Fantastic message. Um, Nathan, how do you see yourself, the future of both your organization and, wildlife conservation, rhinos and, and pangolins and, and the whole deal, like in general, how do you see this? And I, you know, I, under, I will understand that you said it's, it's hard to say it's, you know, all these things, but like your, 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 your hunch. Um, well, look, I will say this. I think it was clearer to see a hopeful future before COVID. Um, you know, the, the idea of shutdown and social distancing was certainly a first world um, a first world luxury, if I dare say that, right. Yeah. Um, you know, the cost to some of these countries has been 
been pretty detrimental. So I, I think it's a lot cloudier for me based on these effects. Uh, you know, whether some good will come out of that uh, long term based on a recognition of need, it's hard to see right now. So I, I don't like to be unhopeful. Um, you know, I, I can be more hopeful about our organization moving forward. We've grown every year. You know, we're not a group that's going to grow massive. That's just not our nature. You know, we're looking to take on about three projects a year. Uh, we're engaged in a project right now to introduce a canine uh, unit, the first ever of its kind in this country. Dogs coming from Holland. It's been a massive undertaking for us. It's the biggest thing we've done, um, involves a lot of other training and pieces. Um, you know, and I think, I think we're going to stand on great success with that. I think we're introducing that capability in a place, like I said before, where the poaching hasn't become as dramatic or rampant. And we hope that, you know, this, this protects them from that and that we will continue to invest in, in this location and some of the others. Um, so I, I do see us growing. I see us have more stability, uh, from a, um, from donors, people we've brought to the table. Um, you know, we do what we do because of donations. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, I, I see us being effective, multinational. Uh, I would like to see us maybe taking on a couple more projects a year, maybe four or five or six uh, in, in the next, you know, in, in about a five-year metric. But we, we are all about small, high-quality executions, or relatively small, right? Or I should say, rather than small, I should say um, limited, limited scope, you know, full identifying an in-state and executing that. And we've gotten very good, you know, at that model. So um, yeah, for us, I, I would like to see us very busy, effective. I'd like to see growth in relationships and I'd like to see more collaborations with people who recognize that we can, you know, offer something to what they already do very well. Um, yeah. I don't, what does the future look like in wildlife conservation? I don't know. I would prefer it to be less militaristic, of course. Um, but I would say that so long as there is a threat that is armed and willing to fight, you know, let's make the wildlife protectors as badass as possible. And I can look forward to that being a part of conservation. <laughs> Nathan, thank you very much. You're doing guys great jobs. I wish you all the best in the future. And, and I, I wish you uh, great success in, in, in what you do and empowering those, those local communities, those local rangers, uh, making them safer, making the animals safer. Um, Uh, people can will be able to find links uh, to your social media and your website on the description of the show. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, man. Thanks for what you do.